when I asked her, you know, were they training you to compete? She said, no, they don't train the girls. They only train the boys. And I said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start training these girls. Rhonda Harper is the founder of Black Girl Surf. Her isolated journey through the surfing world motivated her to start the group so others don't feel the same. Now she's training Black girls all over the world to become professional surfers. Santa Cruz, Dakar, Cape Town, Los Angeles, Rhonda's reach is far. And in each place, she creates a world of coaches, mentors, and trainers of color, all with the same goal, foster Black talent. Her most notable surfer is Kaju Sambe, Senegal's first professional female surfer who's training to qualify for the Olympics. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. In this episode, we're diving into the world of professional surfing, its limitations, its lack of representation, but also the face behind an organization working to diversify what's notably a white-dominated sport. Rhonda had been training surfers for years before she met Kaju, but the site still stopped her in her tracks. I found Kaju at a camp in Senegal. As soon as I saw her, she just was was a Black woman holding a surfboard. Female surfers are rare in Senegal, and it's why Rhonda was determined to help Kaju navigate not just surfing technique, but also the absence of support. It has been a road because it is very difficult for a West African girl, a Muslim West African girl, to be able to be successful when you have men who've been doing it longer than you. And that's kind of her story. Kaju's story and her love for the water started when she was 14. And it's clearly a deep love because she spends hours on the ocean. So Kaju's schedule was, I wake her up at about 5 o'clock in the morning. And she's out in the water for like maybe 4 to 5 hours. And you're going to repeat, 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 repeat until you get this thing right. Rhonda says she's hard on Kaju because as a Black surfer, judges will score her differently. She has to contend with the fact that her body type doesn't fit the stereotype that people, even judges, have of female surfers. That's one thing. When you're training somebody for especially representing your country and and you're Black, so you got to be like three, four times better. So... Every time she does something and she, like, lazes off, I'm like, remember now, you're Black, (laughs) you know? And then she hypes it up and she understands now she's focused more because she knows that she's going to be judged technically different. But for Kaju, when she's on the water, the limitations and obstacles in front of her drift away. It's extraordinary. And also, when you're in the water, you forget all your problems. You think you're in another world. You think you're somewhere extraordinary. And she shares that passion with the next generation of female surfers and encourages them to follow their dreams despite what people might say. 
What I say to young girls who start surfing is that I always advise them not to listen to other people, to block their ears, concentrate, go straight ahead, focus on their training, not listen to others, because I went through this myself with people talking, and I stopped surfing, which is why I started surfing a bit late. There are echoes of Rhonda's story in Kaju's experience. She, too, was a young Black girl drawn to the water. In fact, she was thrown into it as a toddler by her dad. I was four years old, and he just, like, pitched me like a basketball right into the swimming pool. (laughs) And he was like, you're going to tread that water. And he was just like, do this, do this, do that. And I was doing it, and he knew right then I was going to be a water baby. She grew up going to segregated pools in towns across the U.S., Her parents were civil rights leaders who traveled a lot, and they made sure their hotels had swimming pools. She first got on a surfboard at 15 years old in Hawaii. Her ride lasted less than a minute. Hey, this is good. We paddling. It's all good. Turn the board around. We're ready. Take the wave. I barely stood up, and I went to the right. I came up without a top. At 15 years old, that's the most embarrassing thing that ever happened in your life. But she didn't let that experience stop her. And for days after, she kept trying. I would go there every single day after school. Five days it took me to stand up on that board. She grew to become a competitive surfer and a member of the U.S. Coast Guard. This, despite the predominant stereotype that Black people don't swim. Most of the surfers around her were white. And more than once, she said she was the target of hate speech and even vandalism. Once she came back to her car after surfing in California to find that someone had tagged it with the N-word. But surfing wasn't always a white-dominated sport, and it's something I asked Rhonda about. I think it would surprise a lot of people to realize that the origins of this sport, of surfing, date back to the ancient Polynesians. But so often when we think about surfing, you think about a majority white population on a beach in the West, in California, riding the waves. Why is that? And and do enough people understand that history? So history has been rewritten, right? So what we thought was Polynesian culture may have been. However, surfing was found in Ghana. Surfing was found in Peru. When I talk to people, I try to say this one thing. You have to see who's actually writing our history down, right? They're going to, of course, curtail it to how the narrative that they want to put out. It's arrogant for anybody to think that where you have any coastal access, that you are not using it for some type of recreation. Clearly, there is a surf culture in Senegal, there's also a surf culture in the United States. What has it been like for you in seeing those two places? Have there been different challenges? They're so different. They're, they're so different in a way that I had to stop working in the U.S. for a minute. What the industry, what the surf industry has done with this colonization of the sport is they've created this division The division Rhonda talks about is one between white and Black surfers. She wanted to find a way to help Black surfers in the U.S. feel like they were part of a community that welcomed them. 
And since that community didn't exist, she decided to create it. She helped launch Africa Surf International, a competition solely for Black surfers. It was also a way for Black surfers to get noticed on an international scale and by brands that could sponsor them. So the reason behind the Africa Surf International is we have to showcase Black talent so that you can get sponsors because it's very hard to get a sponsor. When you get sponsored, it's all about your image. And if the image is blonde hair, blue eyed, white women or men, you're not getting sponsored. So decades go by and there's no Black representation. So we're like, okay, so let's take all this Black talent. We'll go to Sierra Leone. We'll hold this contest. Africa Surf International did achieve partly what Rhonda hoped. It brought Black people from around the world to Africa for a chance to professionally compete in surfing. But it also exposed another challenge. So we started sending out invitations around the diaspora. Voice, no problem, lined up. Everybody was lined up. So we had just about every country represented. Even the U.S. had a U.S. team. The only thing that was missing, we had one girl, and she just happened to be from Sierra Leone, and she was the first and only surfer in Sierra Leone that was a female. Seeing the lack of women on the roster deepened Rhonda's passion for training Black female surfers. And it turned into Black Girl Surf, Now in her beachfront neighborhood in Dakar, Senegal, she starts her day with a group of girls as young as seven. So at any given time when when that door opens, there could be anywhere from like five to 20 girls sitting on my stairs. And she's launched an official chapter of Black Girls Surf in Senegal. Every time we walk down the street, people would get out of their car and take pictures of these Black girls walking down the street with these surfboards. And you just get that smile on your face, but that sense of pride that they have now. While they're carrying their boards, they know they're getting the attention, so they know they're doing something special. And it's something that they love, that they didn't think they could do. And the success of that chapter has her excited to open more across West Africa. So for Black Girl Surf, five years down the road, the plan is to start a surf series, which is a contest series, a surf contest series within the diaspora. Um, not just with all of our camps, but pro and amateur participants. Right now, we depend on the World Surfing League or the International Surfing Association. And those are the two organizations that have been excluding Black women from professional surfing. So to have our own professional surfing series um, and showcase ourselves, that's the goal for Black Girl Surf. There's one other big goal on Rhonda's radar. In 2016, surfing became one of the five newly approved sports by the International Olympic Committee, meant to be featured in Tokyo 2020. But that's been postponed to 2021 because of the pandemic, and no one is sure it will even happen then. So Rhonda has Kaju focused on Paris 2024 instead. At the same time, Rhonda plans to hand off Black Girl Surf Senegal to Kaju in the near future. I just hope that girls listen to what we're saying here at Black Girl Surf. And whether they want to be a surfer or a skier or a barber, it doesn't matter what it is that they want to do. If you have a dream, you should be able to live out that dream unapologetically. 
And I think that society keeps girls from having an imagination because they oftentimes put us in a box. And I want the next generation to know that there's someone out here, there's an entity out there that whether you are within our sport or not, we're going to support you and your dream, however or whatever that may be. And that's The Take. If you want to learn more about Rhonda's work and see Kaju in action, we're posting a video produced by our Al Jazeera English online colleagues. It'll be on our Twitter and Instagram accounts at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Dina Kispe with Priyanka Tilve, Nagin Odiai, Oni Wohacha, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.